I wonder if you can think of a memorable day in your life. I wonder if you can think of a memorable day in your life. Anything come to mind for anyone sort of quickly, instantly? 21st of September. 21st of September, yeah. <laughs> day of your baptism. Yeah. Memorable day in your life, Dave. Yeah. Thank you. Anyone else? Wedding day. Whew. Brownie points. Well played. Memorable day. What was memorable about it, Paul? That's really cruel, isn't it? I'm sorry. <laughs> Say again? You can still visualise a whole lot of it. How cool is that? That's wonderful. It's kind of a blur, and yet there's so many things that, that, that went on. Other people, other, other things that, that are memorable days. For all sorts of reasons. There's not good or bad answers to this. Tina? Sunday, April the 16th, 2006, which was the day Bevan was born. Wow. Yeah, what a gift. What a gift. Brilliant. That's incredible, isn't it? He's growing up. He's growing up. Anyone else? Bursting to say something. If not, we can move on. This account today. I don't know whether it was just a day or whether actually as we look at the passage it it was more than a day that is uh, recounted in this passage. But here we've got about 12 verses that express a pretty memorable day or few days for Paul and Barnabas. It must have taken at least a day, as I I kind of read it. So often when we read something in Scripture, we kind of think it all happened there and then, in that kind of time that we've read it. But actually, as you stop to think, this this is kind of almost like a diary entry of stuff that went on, that happened, that really happened. Let's just be clear. To Paul and to Barnabas. I want us to look at it in in four parts. Because actually it turned out to be a pretty tough day at the office for dear Paul. I want us to look at it in four parts because actually I think it's a really, really practical passage that's got a lot of stuff just to, to come up and teach us. Which is... I shouldn't be surprised, but I, I kind of, as I read it, I thought, what, mm, where are we going to go with this? But I just felt there's so much stuff in here that is just really practical for us. And so as we go through each point, there's just stuff that I would love for you to, to take as practical things to do that will help us. So there are four parts to the passage. There's, there's, there's Paul's proclamation, his telling of the good news story. Then there's a healing. Then there's this mistaken identity. And finally, there's persecution. Some practical stuff in each of those things. I'm not thinking that we kind of learn how to persecute, by the way. That's not where we're going with that bit. 
But let's start at the beginning. Paul doing what he was called to do, to proclaim the good news of Jesus. He had met Jesus in the most incredible way on the road to Damascus, encountered Jesus as he indeed was, um, he was persecuting the, 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 the Christians. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he had a complete turnaround. And here he is proclaiming the gospel, which is a constant feature of the book of Acts. If you look back over what we've done over these many months, several times already, there are some very clear expressions of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus. Look in chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. Chapter 3, verses 11 to 26. Chapter 4, verses 8 to 12. Pretty much the whole of chapter 7. Chapter 10, 34 to 43. Chapter 13, 16 to 41. Time and again, the good news of Jesus is described and explained and spoken out let alone all the times that it's simply mentioned as the word of the Lord was spoken. The word of God was spoken. And so here, verse 9, as in other places, we just know that Paul is talking about Jesus as this man was listening to what he said was speaking to a crowd gathered. And I think the practical thing that comes straight out of this kind of idea of proclamation is that actually we need to continually revisit the story of the good news of Jesus for ourselves. Because we need to be prepared to explain and express what that good news is. 1 Peter 3 gives us a very direct kind of instruction that we need to be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the, you, for the hope that you have. And get this, do it with gentleness and respect. So it's really important that maybe we revisit regularly what it is that, that we believe of the good news. And there's some great explanations of it in Acts already. Go back and have a look. If you want those references, I can easily give them to you. I wonder how those would help you to explain Jesus to other people. But there's something quite surprising also in, in this passage, in verses 15 through 17. You see, as Paul realises with Barnabas, what, Barnabas what, what has gone on after the healing of the man which we'll come to, Paul proclaims something of the gospel in really a very different way, even from the last chapter. He doesn't use the language of the synagogue 
like he did in chapter 13, where he was speaking to people presumably schooled in, in, in Jewish history, in the Jewish tradition. There he was able to kind of piece it together in a way that made some assumptions about what people knew and then point towards Jesus through that. But here, he's speaking to people who've got no idea what's going on. These folks have no concept of the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, of our creator God. All they've got is some notion of a bunch of pagan gods, idols that they worship, temples that they go to 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 kind of pay homage in the hope that they might not be destroyed. I wonder as we explain the gospel today, how prepared we are to be thinking about what what folk we know will understand of the gospel. Where do we need to start? Because more and more, I'd like to suggest that that, that folk haven't got any, any sense of the Christian story. Well, they've got such a distorted sense of the Christian story that it's all wound up in in kind of media scandals and and kind of splits and rifts over different things that the media covers. And it's got very little to do with Jesus. Do we assume that people know the concept of one God? The reality of one God. Do people understand what we're talking about when we talk about sin, when we talk about forgiveness, when we talk about repentance? Do we use Christian jargon like salvation and grace, assuming that those things are understood? Actually, maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, I'm not entirely sure I could explain what that means. Please ask. Please talk to others. Think about some of those things that maybe you would just assume that is understood, but actually maybe you need to think it a little bit more. Because there's a practical thing, I think, that we can learn from Paul's proclamation that we need to be ready to explain the gospel if we know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. But that we need to be thinking people who are able to to try to explain. I loved what, um, Glyn, you you expressed in in your prayer, and you've picked up these things. You're very good, actually, at picking up little things that that explain words. And and the word justified in your prayer, a a way of explaining it is, is just as if I'd never done it. And it's great. Little things like that are just so helpful. Because, are you justified? Oh, I don't know, what's that mean? But little things like that are ever so helpful, so thank you for that. And there'll, there'll be other things that you can just uh, think on through. But it's important for us to see that the word of God is spoken faithfully. Then the second thing we come to is this healing. God breaks in 
to that man's life in a way that can only be God. That guy has never walked in his life. And Paul sees an opportunity to just call upon the power of God to heal him. And that is awesome. God did that. And God still does heal today. God still does work in the most incredible ways in his world. But you know, I noticed something. As I was reading and as I was looking back over some of the the times where, where God works in miraculous ways in the gospel. And this isn't a kind of a full analysis of a kind of a, it's not a completely theologically watertight thing, but let me just make an observation. That most of the miraculous occurrences in Acts happen outside the bounds of the synagogue or the temple, outside of the religious buildings happen out there. They happen out there where people need to see the wonder of God. Paul steps out of his comfort zone. I find it really hard to imagine kind of preaching in this kind of context or in a context where I'm outside and and, and seeing somebody that I just think, yeah, God wants to touch that person and to have the guts to say, get up. But God can do that. He sees the faith of that man and he acts in God's name. Will we step out of our comfort zone? Or if we're honest, would we prefer to see the miraculous if that's really what we want to see? Maybe we don't want to see that. But would we prefer to see it within the safety of our own walls here? Kind of in a place where other people kind of understand. Now I know and believe that God in his mercy does act in miraculous ways amongst his people. Is there a danger, provocative question, that sometimes we yearn for the miraculous for our own sake rather than for God's glory? God heals and God is glorified. So this memorable day, For Paul and Barnabas, so far so good, to be fair. Proclaiming the gospel, good stuff. A healing, whoa, today has started really well. Liking this, then what happens? This is where it seems to be kind of later on in that day. Because there's a bit of a rumpus and a bit of things going on. And then there's a mistaken identity. The response to this healing helps us to see that that this culture that they're speaking into is totally pagan. Because it seems like they, the, the people have kind of gathered together. Did you see what happened there? Did you see what? Did you see? Have you heard? 
And all of that stuff is going on and there's a kind of a growing sense of, of, of excitement. Or perhaps a growing sense of fear. See, there are some historical records that suggest that the poet Ovid had written about Zeus and Hermes some 50-odd years before. Ovid had written about Zeus and Hermes visiting the town of Lystra as human beings. And the poet had said that the people rejected these two gods And it resulted in in many of the people being drowned because they weren't recognised. And so these people were fearful of vengeful pagan gods. They were fearful that maybe if we ignore these people, we're going to get the same treatment. Because that's what so many pagan gods do. They basically want to be placated. God of the Bible doesn't want to be placated. He wants us to respond to him in love. So whatever the the reason for the people's fearful action, it might just be that that was their thing, that was their, their kind of response. But the people of Lystra made an incredibly human mistake. They assume that what happened with Paul being used to heal that man by the power of God, they assume that that was Paul who had the power to do it. That Paul was somehow some superhuman, a deity. I wonder if that's a very human thing, how might we fall into that trap? You'd be saying, well, yeah, I'm not going to be kind of worshipping some pagan god. But I wonder, people that are close to us, a spouse, a parent, a child. Do we sometimes put so much hope and security and expectation in somebody else that they actually fill the role that should be played centrally by, by a relationship with God in our life? Do we expect our spouses or our parents or our children or our friends to give us ultimate security? Do we rely on them so heavily that actually it places an enormous burden on them and it leaves us open to being disappointed? Another way of looking at this, and it happens, and I find this a bit scary, but what about people who've guided you in in your faith journey? What about people like me who, 
who are pastors and, and leaders of churches. And I'm not saying this because there's anything special about me, because I know me, and I know I'm a numpty so much of the time. But is there a danger that we put a special kind of reverence and awe into our church leaders? Assuming that they've got all the answers and that they can actually help us to, to come to the Lord rather than us coming ourselves to the Lord. Or the flip side of that, has somebody messed up so much as a Christian that you think, well, yeah, if that's what Christians are all about, then I'm not sure that that's really worth us following. See, the people of Lystra mistake what's going on and they don't see the God of creation who came down in, in Jesus to come and save the world. And of course, Paul tries to redress that balance by, as we've said, teaching them something about God in verses 15 to 17. But there is a real tendency in us to misplace our trust in, in people. Now, don't get me wrong. See, Paul, we were looking uh, on Tuesday nights in, in Philippians this, this last week. Paul, in chapter 3, verse 17 of Philippians, urges the Philippian Christians to follow his example. And of course, we can learn from one another. Of course, I hope that, that by my kind of leading here that I can be a helpful example. Not that everybody has to be like me. And I hope that each of you can be a helpful example to other people and that we can learn from one another. We can identify the grace of God working in one another. Writer to the Hebrews makes that great list of the heroes of the faith. We can learn from one another and it's good, but let's not slip over that fine line and misplace our trust in other people that needs to be put in God. So we've seen the proclamation, we've seen the healing, we've seen that there's been a mistaken identity. Last thing that we see is where his kind of bad day at the office gets really bad, to be fair. See, there were Jews that came from Antioch and Iconium. Now, I don't know whether those Jews were already there in Lystra or whether word got back to them, and this is some days later that the Jews who had already chased them out of, of those places had come and said, oh, they're troublemakers, they're down there now, let's go and sort them out down there. But in a sense, that doesn't really matter because what does matter is that when the word of God is proclaimed... When the good news of Jesus and his desire to save 
his people in his world is proclaimed and God is at work in people's lives, then actually we know that Satan will want to come and pull the rug from under our feet. And not everybody's reaction to amazing things will be positive. In fact, some people will be downright vicious and persecution will ensue. Here the people turn against Paul and stone him. Just stop for a minute and think of the irony of that. What happened in chapter 7 of Acts? Where Paul stood by and watched Stephen be stoned to death. And here he is, getting the same treatment. Incredible. Incredible. But we learn from Paul that he, he's content, and he's learnt to be content, regardless of whether the gospel is well received, or whether he's hounded out of town. He knows he's got a job to do. And it's not for us to, to kind of get up people's noses and, and kind of invite being hounded out of town. But maybe, just maybe sometimes, we need to be brave enough to say, this is kind of what I believe. Saying it with gentleness, saying it with respect, but realising that that might not be very popular, might not win you all the friends that you might wish to have. On this occasion, Paul's not killed. And he continues to rely on God. I just love that, that last verse, verse 20, where, where they just say, after that, he got up, went back into the city, the next day he moved on. Matter of fact. He just got stoned for pity's sake. Poor bloke. But I also love what it says at the beginning of that verse. The disciples had gathered around him. I don't know what that was. Was that that they laid hands on him and prayed for him? Was it that it was just really practical and said, come on, mate, help you get, I'm going to help you. We'll get back into the city and we'll bandage you up, we'll give you some food, sort your clothes out. Practical help. I don't know what it was, but the disciples gathered around him and helped him. Enough for him to go on his way. I wonder, do you feel up against it? Are you struggling to walk in the way that God wants you to walk? Maybe actually this morning you would really appreciate one or two people gathering around you and just standing with you, maybe praying for you. Or maybe you just need to say, I'm struggling, and uh, I could do with some help here, please. Or perhaps you need to, to get a little bit more actively involved in that gathering around yourself. Perhaps it's by giving your, your, your mobile phone number or your email to Judy, 
so that you can join the prayer network, so that actually when people do text us and say, you know what, it's all gone belly up, please pray, you can be a part of that gathering around, wherever you are. You can gather around, even if it's not physically. We can pray and be a church that is praying. Please consider joining the prayer network so that we we just are as, as widely covered as possible in prayer. Bless you, Judy, for coordinating that. And uh, I'm sure you'll be delighted to be mobbed by people afterwards. Maybe it's that you need to ask folk for prayer. Maybe you need to commit to praying yourself. Maybe it starts with committing to a time tomorrow to pray, to gather round. I haven't put it on this sheet, but I have put it on the little board. We talked at church meeting about maybe having a little reminder board by the door. There's also an opportunity to meet here, 7am tomorrow, if you would like to. It's not possible for everybody. I, I, I totally recognise that. But for some, that might be a really encouraging thing, just for half an hour, maybe a bit longer, to start tomorrow in prayer. But there in the persecution, people gathered around Paul, and we can do the same. Following Jesus is never going to be easy or comfortable, and we sometimes seem to to peddle that, even though I don't think we particularly do. Even in this fellowship, I think we're pretty realistic, but still I think folk sometimes think, well, yeah, it's going to be a kind of a bit of a, a, a bed of roses. But be assured that Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. Our time is nearly up. But I just felt that there, were, there were four things there in that passage and four quite practical things for you to, to take on board. And maybe you can only do one of those things. Maybe only one of those things is appropriate for you. Is it time to revisit the gospel story? Think about how you explain it. Are there situations out in your everyday life where maybe as you proclaim the gospel with your words, with the way you live your life, that God might want to draw attention to himself with something miraculous? And he just wants you to step out of your comfort zone and say, can I pray for you? (coughs) Are there folk that have got the wrong place in your life? That actually have taken the place of God? Good people, good relationships, but just wrong emphasis. Do you need to resolve that before God this morning? Or are you up against it? Need people to gather round? Are you conscious of others that are up against it and you could practically gather around them in some way? 